So we're at the end of the Christmas season, and if you know much of the Christmas story, the words don't be afraid or fear not actually show up quite a few times in the Christmas story. When the angels show up to tell Mary that she's going to have this baby, the first thing the angel says is don't be afraid or fear not. When the angel shows up to tell Joseph that even though Mary is pregnant and you had nothing to do with it, it's really okay, um, don't be afraid. It's all right. And then when the angels show up to tell the shepherds that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem and to go see him, the first thing they have to tell the shepherds is, don't be afraid. Because you encounter God or you encounter his representative and you're going to kind of feel afraid. The thing is, though, is that we don't, I don't think we're really comfortable with being afraid. You know, it was interesting to me that when I was looking for an image to go with this, I really couldn't find an image that had the people in the story actually looking afraid. I mean, Mary in this one looks like sort of how you look when the server comes and says, is everything okay at your table? She doesn't look terribly afraid. She just looks interrupted by the angel here. Um, And there were none when they were looking actually afraid. And Yet in the story, if you read the story the way Luke accounts it with the shepherds, the old translation says they were actually sore afraid or sorely, like really, really teeth-chatteringly, tummy-achingly afraid. Now, I I think part of the reason with this is, is we're just not very comfortable with the idea of fear. We're not very comfortable with our own fears we're not comfortable when other people are afraid, and fear kind of shames us. It kind of bugs us. I mean, mean, think about it. Think about Dorothy's three friends from the Wizard of Oz, the cowardly lion who was afraid all the time, the tin man who had no heart, and the scarecrow who had no brains. We don't blame the scarecrow for not having any brains, right? Because he's a scarecrow. What is he going to do? The tin man, it's not his fault that he doesn't have a heart because he's made out of tin, and you don't have a heart when you're doing that. But we're not quite as sympathetic to the lion, are we? You just want to say, man the heck up, or lion the heck up. Lion, you're a lion. Don't be frightened. Be brave. Don't be scared. Now, there's something about fear that's hard for us. And, and And it colors a whole lot of things. In fact, I think it even colors the way that we often view the biblical story. You know, if you if you follow the whole story of the Bible and you look at our fathers and mothers of the faith of Israel, you'll see that they spend a lot of time being afraid, but we're often tempted to look back at that and just say, oh, come on, man. The Lord's there. They should have been okay. Like, like this passage from Joshua. It's, it's a popular one. It shows up on wall hangings. We repeat it a lot because it's true. And yet, when we look at this, instead of something encouraging, we often look at it as almost a club to shame the Israelites because, oh, they shouldn't have been afraid because God said things like this. He says, look, this is to Joshua, just as he's about to take over. Moses is dead. Joshua's about to take over. He says, look, haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged because the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. You know, again, it's like, stop being afraid. Don't, don't be frightened. You shouldn't have fear. God's with you, right? And so we read these stories, and we tend to look down on these folks a little bit. I mean, one of the classic ones is when the people of Israel experience fear 
in God's presence. You might remember this part of the story. This is when the people of Israel arrive at um, Mount Sinai. We have better illustrations for these than we do the other ones. Um, And the people of Israel have been set free from slavery in Egypt. They've arrived back at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb where God had first appeared to Moses. And God calls Moses up to the mountain to speak to him, and then he's going to speak to the people through Moses, and then speak to the people themselves directly. And so first Moses comes up on the mountain, and while he's up there, God speaks to him, and there's all kinds of lightning and thunder and all this kind of stuff. And then Moses goes down and talks to the people and says, all right, come on up to the mountain. The Lord wants to speak to you guys directly. He's been speaking through me up to this point, but he's your God, and you're his people, and He wants to speak to you directly. And instead of the people going, oh boy, they freak out. And they tell Moses, as it says here, you know, you you could speak to us yourself. This is Exodus 22. You could speak to us yourself, but if God speaks to us directly, we're going to die. We just can't do this. So we don't want the Lord to talk to us. You talk to him for us, and we'll be okay. And this is really a sad and tragic part in the story. But I think for a lot of us, As contemporary readers, because we're uncomfortable with the idea of being afraid, we don't read this very sympathetically. We tend to read this and say, ah, man, those those Israelites, if I was there, I totally would have handled it differently. And some of that's because of this verse, which is really powerful if you get it right. This is 1 John, and if you're going to talk about fear, this is one of the best places to talk about it. But 1 John says this, he says, you know, there is no fear in love. The perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And, and there's a way that Christians often read that and, and look back, so, oh, well, they didn't have perfect love, we have it now, so I get it. But I don't think that's what that really means. We're going to come back to this verse in a little bit. But again, I just want us to get a hold of the fact that I don't think we're very comfortable with the idea that we can be afraid. And we often tell ourselves, well, we don't, we're, we're not afraid, right? I mean, what have we been afraid of in the last year? Were we afraid? You know, did we have any fears? Were we freaked out about stuff? You know, did we decide not to go to movies because somebody was going to do something? No, we're not afraid. We don't face fear at all, right? Well, yeah, we do. And here's the thing. And this is why not fearing is such an important thing. Fear has the ability to transform us. Just as love has the ability to transform us, so does fear. That fear can shape us. Fear can, we tend to use words like warp and distort. Warping, distorting is still shaping. Fear can shape us. But so can love. And that's the thing that we're going to talk about today is juxtaposing the effect that both love and fear can have on us. But the, the really pernicious thing about fear and the thing that makes it really hard for us to deal with is not only the shame that we have that's connected with fear, but the fact that once fear takes root in us, it has the ability and a way of creating its own truth. Um, and some of this is actually physiological. It's part of just how we are wired. Um, you know, I don't know that how... We make sense out of that, but there, there are ways and things that we just sort of naturally experience that aren't good. And I, I want to just take a minute and talk about that, about how we experience 
fear, kind of physiologically, just in the way that our systems experience it. And then talk, the good news here is to talk about the way that God can help us get past that. So one of the biggest challenges you get from fear is that it messes with your brain. I mean, it literally does. You know, you know that, that feeling you get when you're afraid and you kind of feel it in your tummy? You feel that kind of hollowness? Well, that, that's an actual physical response. What that is, is your body is getting ready to either fight or run. In my case, it would be run. Most, some people, it's both. But, um, but it's getting ready to handle something scary and difficult. And what you're feeling is actually your body taking blood away from your central organs and putting them into your arms and legs so you can do stuff. But the other thing that it does is it takes the front part of your brain where we actually think and make sense of things and makes it kind of turn off. And so that effect that fear has. Now, this is one thing that you get when a dog lurches out at you and you get that sudden burst. But what I'm talking about is the kind of long-range fear that we have that's reinforced by what we read and the people we talk to and the stuff that we watch on TV, the kind of low-level fear that just sort of takes root in us. And there's lots of people in, me in various kinds of media that are very happy to push those fear buttons because they're really effective. And so it's the long-term effect of this that I think a lot of us suffer from, and we're not even completely aware of it. So one of the things that fear does is it makes us suggestible. The part of our brain that does our thinking isn't working very well. And so we are actually much more suggestible than we would be otherwise when we're experiencing fear, especially when it's long-term, low-level fear. Now, I'm not talking about good suggestibility. There is a good kind of suggestibility. You know, if I tell you, hey, try to find somebody that you can do something loving for today, you're thinking, yeah, I want to be a loving person. I'm going to do that. That's, that's not bad. I'm not manipulating you when I say that. Um, you know, so there's a good kind of suggestibility. I'm, I'm pretty susceptible to this. A few years back, when I was teaching college and I had summers off, I'd get up and watch the Tour de France in the morning. And um, one of the American team that year was sponsored by Chipotle and Garmin, who makes GPS watches and GPS devices. By the end of the Tour de France, I had been to Chipotle eight times, and I owned a Garmin watch. So, you know, I'm, if you suggest something that I'm inclined to do anyway, you know, I'm happy to do it. And so all of us are suggestible in that way, and that's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing, but we're also suggestible in negative ways. And especially when fear starts to take root into us, we don't even realize it, but we are much more suggestible. And it's not a coincidence that all the panic about Ebola and ISIS ended pretty much right after the election because it worked to some folks' advantage to talk about those. And once the election was over, have you heard much about Ebola since, since then? Not so much. Um, the other thing that it does and the way that fear works is, and there's a lot of things in our life that are like this. There's a certain momentum in how we work that if you've experienced some fear, that what you get next is just more fear and more fear. So that being afraid and experiencing fear doesn't think, oh man, I've been afraid. Your next step is not, I need to get over this and get done with it. You're just prepared to be more afraid. You know, it's sort of like when you're on vacation. You know, vacation just prepares you for more vacation. Um, having ice cream prepares you for more ice cream. Fear prepares you for more fear. And it, and it almost grooves that in our emotions. So once fear starts to take root, 
it really starts to distort the way that we can experience things. And the new things that we experience tend to be filtered through that fear that we've already been experiencing. And then the final thing that it does is fear really messes with our sense of proportion. So I was going to the doctor around the time they were screening us for Ebola. Have you been to West Africa? No. And I'm thinking, are you going to ask me if I have flu symptoms? 10,000 people die a year of the flu in this country. N nobody's died of Ebola yet. Why, are you, why aren't you asking me about the flu? But when we're afraid of something, our sense of proportion goes away. I mean, you had more chance of being hit by lightning while you're enjoying your donut out there than you had about getting Ebola. I mean, we, you know, we're under no threat of ISIS. I mean, John talks about how we, we look forward to praying with you guys. One of the things that shows up frequently is so-and-so, this family member of mine, is flying. Can you please pray for them? And the idea is, is they're going to be in an airplane, and that's a, scary, that's a scary thing. But you know, statistically, the most dangerous part of a flight is the drive to the airport, right? I mean, you took a much bigger risk driving to church today than you, than you would by getting on an airplane. One of the safest things you can do is get on a commercial airliner. But the way that, that fear works is our sense of proportion goes completely away. And once fear takes root, it's really hard to get rid of it. So fear does create its own truth. It tends to distort our perspective, and it makes us see things that aren't there. And without some help, we can't see what really is there. I'm going to do a little exercise with you. You guys ever seen this one before? This is what is called, this is an a illustration of Pogendorf's illusion. Now, I sound important. I didn't know what Pogendorf's illusion was until last night, but I ran across this, and I thought, wow, that's exactly what we're talking about. So here's the, here's the exercise. So you see, you see one line coming diagonally from the upper left, the blue line. So the question is, which of those two lines, or for the pedants out there, line segments um, that you see out there, which one is the extension of the blue line? I know you can guess it's a 50% thing, but, but how does it look? So for most of us, as we look at that, the way our eyes see it, the blue one is the extension of the blue one, right? And that's how it kind of sees. Now, pull out something that has a long edge, like your, your connection card or your phone, or if you're particularly thin and ripped, your forearm, or wh whatever it is, and put that along. Put that along the edge. Can I see that? So you see that? It's the red one, right? It's the red one. But if you looked at that and you weren't guessing, you would just always say it's the blue one because somehow that's the way our mind does it. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's what fear does to the way that we perceive reality. That fear creates its own reality. It creates its own truth. And unless you have something else to put alongside of it, to control it, if you, unless you have something else, some kind of straight edge that can help you see correctly... The way you see things is going to be distorted by fear because, as we've said, fear creates its own truth. So what I want to suggest this morning is that straight edge that we can lay alongside of our fears, along the shame and guilt that comes along with the fears that we experience, that straight edge that will help us see clearly is God's love for us. And 
the passage I want to share with you that was a new one to me is in Daniel chapter 10, verse 19. This was a new, kind of a new passage to me. I mean, I'd read Daniel before a couple times, but this hadn't really stood out to me until somebody pointed this out. Um, Daniel's not in a part of the Bible that I've spent a lot of time with. Like I said, I've read it several times. Um, I came of age in the 70s and early 80s when people were talking about end time stuff a lot, so spent some time there. But I'd never really looked at this before. But this phrase here that's highlighted, greatly beloved, is the part that really jumped out at me. This phrase appears only twice in the Bible. And in both cases, it's here in Daniel 10, and in both cases, it's to calm Daniel down, who is feeling afraid. So don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because you, Daniel, and you, person sitting here today, are greatly beloved by God. That God's great love for us, that's rooted not actually in God himself, but in our lovability, we're going to develop this a little bit, this great love that God has for us that is rooted in our lovability is the thing that can dispel our fear. Now, again, let me go back to that verse from 1 John and unpack that a little bit because I think because of the way that fear tends to distort and guilt tends to distort how we think about things, we don't really hear this verse and what it's trying to say. Now, this is a great verse. Because the subtext here is because God loves you, you really shouldn't be experiencing fear, that that's the good news. But I don't think that's how we often hear this verse. Instead, we hear that next phrase, that perfect love drives out fear, so that if, if God's doing that, you're going to be okay. And then it says, he says this too, he says, because fear has to do with punishment. So if you know that God's not here to punish you, you shouldn't be afraid. If you could just get that behind you, that sense that, oh man, if somebody really knew what I was doing, I'd be in trouble. If God really knew what I was doing, I'd be in trouble. And then you think about that and you think, well, gosh, he does. But we somehow convince ourselves that if we just don't talk about it, if we just don't think about it, somehow God won't notice it either. And so we don't hear this verse in the way that it wants to talk to us. So because fear has to do with punishment, it pushes a button that is very sensitive in each of us. You know, just that idea that someone knows and that we have to be responsible to someone kind of freaks us out. I, I saw this this week in a parody Twitter account. It's not really Chris Rock. It's a parody account. But I thought this was just brilliant. You know, when somebody says, hey, I need to talk to you, you see what happens next year? That one sentence has the power to make you remember every bad thing you've ever done in your life, right? Have you experienced that along the way? Have you had that happen? Hey, can, can we meet a little bit later on? It's like, oh my gosh, why is he out? Why do they need to meet? What happened? And you start going back through everything that's happened. Well, now turn that over to God. And God says, hey, I want to talk directly to you. I don't want to talk through my intermediary. John's great, but this time I want to talk to you, okay? And it's like, oh my gosh, why would God want to talk to me? And those fear buttons, that fear button gets pushed, that guilt, guilt button push gets pushed, and what God wants to do is just be with us. We can't hear it. And this verse that's supposed to be there, that's supposed to be there to help us, ends up getting wrapped up 
in being one more thing that drags us down. We hear that there's no fear in love, and so we think that the one who fears is not made perfect in love, and we still have things that we're afraid of. So what does this mean? If we still have things that we're afraid of, is that it's our fault. It's our fault. God loves you, and if you still have fear in your life, there must be something wrong with you. And then one more way. Fear creates its own truth. Fear creates its own reality. And it just loops around. And fear prepares us for more fear. That guilt prepares us for more guilt. And even as God says, hey, I love you and I want to be with you, that last phrase, and I want to be with you, instead of being great news, it's like, oh my gosh, am I up for this? This is the way that fear creates its own reality in our life. But instead, what God wants us to hear is the predominant thing about who we are. It's not that we failed. It's not that we're broken. It's that we are loved and that we are lovable. If you're at all following along and you have an NIV Bible, you're going to notice that the verse that's up there, that's not how it's translated in the NIV, this verse. The NIV, which is the translation we use most of the time, and it's a great translation. But in this case, it translates the phrase greatly beloved as highly esteemed. You know, don't be afraid, man who is highly esteemed. And then he goes on to say, you know, be strong and courageous, kind of quoting the Joshua passage. Um, and he says, I was strengthened. And I said, let the Lord speak to me, for you have strengthened me. And again, in context, what's happening here is an angel or God's representative has called on Daniel to show him some visions that make up the balance of the book. And at the time, Daniel is exhausted, he's tired, he's gone through a lot of really bad stuff, and he's just not up for it. And so twice, this angelic messenger has to say, don't be afraid, because you are deeply and dearly loved. The reason I didn't go with the NIV is, is I think this word here and this phrase is really, really powerful, and we need to get a hold of this. I'm not quite sure why the NIV translators did it this way, and I don't want to be that guy that argues with the translation all the time. You know, there's a certain way to do that. If you know Greek and Hebrew, which I got to do along the way, you, you end up retranslating the Bible all the way, and I don't want to do that because the translations we have are really good. I mean, I heard a guy on the radio one time that was like, you know, now Jesus and his disciples, they got out of the boat. He had a regional accent. And they got out of the boat, and now the Greek word there, the word boat in the Greek is ployon, which means boat or vessel. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's why they translated it boat. You know, um, <laughs> no way to recover from that, so we just move on. <laughs> um So, so the vast majority of the time, your English translations are great, but this was a choice, and, and I think part of what it is is the translators are a little nervous of locating our lovability in us. These guys have a particular theological um, trend where they want to locate God's love in himself, and this passage locates it in us. What the passage really means, or what it says literally in Hebrew is, don't be afraid, man who is coveted or desired. The word here is really passionate, and when it's translated in different places, 
um, it's translated as a treasure or charm or beauty or it's something that's pleasurable like the, the fruit in the garden that Adam and Eve saw. was It's this word used to describe that. Um, and it's used here twice in this kind of way. And what this is saying is it's locating our lovability not in God, you know. And, and we have a tendency to think, oh yeah, of course God loves me. That's his job. You know, dachshunds go through holes and they dig out ferrets and cats chase string and, and giraffes eat things that are tall. And God loves because that's who God is. That's what he does. It's sort of his job. You know, don't thank me for loving you. It's my job. No, that's not the way it goes. The point that this angel is making with Daniel is that you, Daniel, who are tired, who are discouraged, who is in the midst of all kinds of things and is in a very fearful circumstance right now, you are profoundly lovable. And to push your fear away, you need to get a hold of how profoundly, wonderfully, powerfully lovable you are. This is not just God doing his job, God being God. It's that you, Daniel, are lovable. And so what we can see here is that love itself creates its own kind of truth. And it's not its own kind of truth, but the actual truth. Fear creates kind of a false truth, but whether it's true or false, you can't get past it. But this is what's real. And this is the good news that God has for us today, is that each of us are women and men of lovability. That's who we are. It's built into us. And that our brokenness, that our sin, that our failures, the things that we're ashamed of, do not take that away. That when I, I think a lot of the times we have the idea that when God loves us, he's actually kind of pretending. And that if he really saw us, he wouldn't love us as much. And yet the good news here is that God sees us precisely as we are. And what he sees is people that are deeply, passionately, and wildly lovable. We're lovable not because we're deserving, not because we have a certain standing, not because we've done certain things or abstained from certain things, but we are lovable in and of ourselves. That we are love that God loves us passionately, wildly, even recklessly, simply because we are. Let me say that again. That God loves us passionately wildly, even recklessly, simply because we are. And so what's our job in this? It's simply to be. It's to exist in that love. To use that as the straight edge as we encounter our own fears, as we encounter the things that freak us out, the things that shame us, the things that tell us things about us that are not true, that create their own reality. To use that love and our identity as lovable people, profoundly, wildly loved by God, as the straight edge to show us what's true, even when everything else is telling us something else. You are loved by God in a profound way because you are profoundly lovable. So what are you afraid of? What scares you? Where have you been kind of stuck? 
I'm not talking about phobias, because we all have those. Like, I don't like bugs near my face. I wish that were different, but I'm just never going to be okay with bugs near my face. Um, I, I don't think anybody likes them. Oh, yeah, I had bugs near my face all day today. It was a great day. I don't think anybody likes that, you know? But I've, I've noticed that when there's bugs near my face, it bothers me way more than it does other people. And, and that's not in my character. That's just sort of in, that's like my, it's part of cooked into who I am, like my eye color and things like that. I'm, I'm kind of afraid of the dark. And so if I'm by myself in the dark, I can deal with that. If I'm, I got caught hiking in the dark recently. And so I was telling myself that the trees are just wood and the woods are just trees, but that, you know, you can tell yourself that along the way. And so it's, it doesn't paralyze me, but if I'm by myself and it's in the dark, I'm checking the whole time I'm in the dark. And that's just, again, that's kind of cooked into who I am. Now, I, I'm talking about stuff that runs deeper. So what are, what are you afraid of? Just, this is a safe place. So try to identify that thing that really scared you. And I'm going to be a little vulnerable today and, and tell you about the person who created the greatest fear in me. And I think as I tell you about this, I'm, it's, gonna, it's how I've really come to grips with how deeply God loves us. So I, I hope this will help you as well. But here, here's a picture of the person who has frightened me more than anybody else in my life. Um, this, this is my son, Chris. Um, and he doesn't look all that frightening here. Um, what he's doing, he's wearing a nice suit, he's, he's talking. His job now is he's a, a staff member to a state assembly member, and he's, this is him at a business roundtable where he was representing the assembly member and speaking on his behalf and showed up on the internet, and I Google him periodically now, and he showed up. So it's kind of cool. But this isn't when he was frightening to me. He's not frightening to me now. This is when he was frightening to me. <laughs> Um, this, is, this is my son on the day he was born. He's our firstborn. And it wasn't really him. It was the idea of being a dad and having a child that I found completely terrifying. I mean, I was really excited. We were really looking forward to this child. I loved my wife. The idea of building a family together was awesome. You know, she got through the pregnancy well. He got through this well. He came out fine. He was looking around. He was obviously okay. So I was really excited about this. And actually, my, my fear really didn't center in until a couple days later when we took him home. And we were laying there in bed, and he was crying, and I was holding him like this, kind of like a football, which wasn't reassuring because when I played football, I had bad hands, and I didn't hold on to the ball very well. Um, so that wasn't a good association for me either. But... I just remembered thinking, man, I just love this little guy so much. Very much in the language that I just used to the way that God described us. I loved him passionately, wildly, simply because of who he was. But at the same time, I was desperately afraid that I wasn't going to measure up to that love. That I believed in him, I believed in God, I believed in all of that, but I wasn't sure that I would measure up. And I wasn't sure, I believed in love, but at the end of the day, I just didn't believe in me. And I, I think one of the reasons we have trouble getting a hold of how deeply and profoundly God loves us is that the only analogy we have is the love that we've experienced for other people and that other people have given to us. 
And, and the reality is, is it's always mixed. You know, my fears at some level were true. I was not completely up to the task of being his dad. Mostly, but not completely. And at some level, I was right that I was never going to live up to the intensity of what I was feeling for him. And my daughter's here. I felt the same intensity for her. Actually, I feel more. She's always been my favorite. Chris isn't here. Katie is. Um, just, just to be clear about this. But when Katie came along, I didn't feel the terror that I felt when Chris came along. We had survived it, you know, which, again, the way that fear distorts things. I knew that people had been having children, so depending on how you read Genesis from 6,000 to hundreds of thousands of years, you know, so I, I knew that people had been having children for a long time, but this was my first time, so it was kind of a big deal for me. But I think what happens to us is that because our experiences of love are mixed up with the failings that we've had and the failings that those who have tried to love us have, we end up passing those on to God. That, that kind of covetous, almost greedy love that God has for us, when we've felt that, it gets up, wrapped up in our own greed. You know, you have that for your kids. You only want what's best for them, but you realize that part of that's because you want, want it for you too. And you, you get nervous about that, and that's something that's a problem. And so we back away from that. But what I want to suggest to you today is embrace that. In the, way, in the very wildest and most excessive and craziest ways that you have ever felt love, that's how God feels towards you. In the wildest and craziest and most unreserved love that you've ever felt, that's how God feels towards you. Not because it's his job, but because we are lovable in that sense, that you are dearly loved. And it's the kind of love that God has that will actually close the gap to us. I mean, let's be real about this. God is God and we're not. God is perfect and we're broken. God's great we're pretty good sometimes. And that gap makes us feel like it's always going to be there. But because of our lovability, God is always willing to close the gap. Hopefully some of you already have this story in your head, but you might remember the story Jesus told of the waiting father or the prodigal son. The son who sees that his father is wealthy and he says, hey, give me my inheritance now. I want the money now and I'm going to split and leave you guys behind. And he does. He leaves his father and the rest of the household behind. He takes the money. He blows through it. He has those kind of friends that are there when the money's there and they're gone when the money's gone. The money's all gone. He ends up working, feeding pigs. And he realizes, wow, these pigs are eating better than I am. My, the hired hands at my father's house, they're, they're doing better than I am. I'll go back to the house and just say, look, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Can I at least go to work for you? And if you know the story, there's a huge gap between the son and the father. The son's done a lot of terrible things. And he has a right to kind of, it makes sense for him to be a little apprehensive about how the father's going to respond. And yet if you know the story in Luke 15, Jesus tells us that when the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and with tears ran to him and kissed him and embraced him. Told him, let's have a party, put the best clothes on him, and said, the son who was lost to me 
has been found. But I want you to get a hold of that way, that God is willing to close that gap between us and him. Not because it's his job, but because we are dearly loved. That we are dearly loved. That God is willing to close that gap between us and him. So as Trevor comes up to lead us in one last song, I want to invite you again this week in these moments as the day goes on. Identify what it is that you're afraid of. Identify what it is that scares you. And take the fact that you are dearly loved, that you are dearly lovable, and use that as a straight edge to begin telling yourself the truth, to put aside the lies that your fears have told you and to step into the truth of the fact that you are dearly loved, that you are dearly lovable.